Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. So good to see you welcome each other with such generosity in this space, which is wonderful. And if you're new to our community, just settling in, I hope we manage to catch you too and give you a sense of what Commons is all about, which is great. If we haven't had a chance to meet already, my name is Scott. I am part of our awesome team of staff and volunteers here in Inglewood, and I serve in the community as one of our pastors, which is one of the great honors of my life. But these are exciting times for our community. Yes, because spring is going to come, we hope, right? And we'll soon be able to hang out and play in the park again, which is one of the best parts of this parish location, but also because we have so much coming up for us in this season. As Larissa just let you know a little bit earlier, we're heading into the season of Lent, and we're going to have lots to say about that next week. But we also have a bunch of stuff coming up for us as a community. Easter is looming. We're going to have child dedications and baptisms going to happen. And before you know it, we're going to be talking about running our first stampede breakfast here in Inglewood, which is going to be a lot of fun. But there's also some regular rhythms like our dinner parties and our home groups, the steady ways that we are growing and moving together each and every week. And all of the local partnerships, the ways that many of you serve, you plug in and you try and make a difference here in our city. And there's so much more to this shared life that we have than just our liturgy on Sundays. And so thank you for the ways that you contribute to that in each of the individual lives that you live. Now, today is also significant because we're going to say goodbye to Rome for one more year. And listen, I know that there are some people here in the room today who were around way back when, when we made this commitment to study this piece of ancient literature. And you should all be very proud of yourselves. Uh, And if you happen to have joined us along the way as we've been working through Romans, or maybe you're just listening on our podcast or online, we hope that you feel a sense of accomplishment too. Because next year sometime... We plan to come back and we're going to wrap up this 16-chapter journey that we've been working through with the last four chapters. And as we have studied and taught here together, and for many of you, you have talked about these themes and looked at these passages in your home groups or over coffee with people, it's a big deal to come to the end of something like Romans. And here's why. I've said this to a couple of people the last few weeks, especially this year for me and personally, I can finally feel the beauty And the urgency of Paul's ideas kind of dropping down into my consciousness somewhere. And yeah, there's lots of hefty theology in the things we've been talking about. And it can feel a little awkward or tedious as we go through it verse by verse. I'm sure some of you would say that. But part of why I love our community and I love the way we read together is the ways that the ancient texts are transported for us. And where maybe we used to hear them as far off and displaced from our lives, or maybe they always seem to be focused on rule following, we heard them that way. We heard the text always telling us to get it right. We find in our community that the longer we sit with these texts and we take care with them, and we attend to them with nuance, they start to open up like a long-anticipated blossom in spring. And I have found that the past few weeks, and I hope that some of you have as well. Because, see, Paul does talk about some big things. And the biggest of them all is how amazed he was at what God had started to do in the world with the life of Jesus. And how the story of God's work in the world had become brighter and how so many more people had access to it now. 
And I hope that as we've remembered Paul's questions about God's faithfulness, as we've talked about how God's love is sovereign and how what's truest about us is the love of God that keeps us, that you haven't gotten lost in all the sifting we've had to do with these themes, and that some small measure of the wonder that Paul must have felt as he wrote that it's found its way to you. Wonder that God's love could actually be as good as we say it is, and that it's for all of us. This is what Paul starts singing about at the end of chapter 11, where we left off last week. He's expounding on the intrinsic blessing of the divine that's at work in all creation, making its way into our everyday messes and our conversations and our difficulties, which is why we thought a little bit about sometimes, sometimes it feels like we miss God in all of that greatness. And this is something that was bothering Paul as he wrote because he was heartbroken over how some of his Jewish friends and family weren't able to see what he had found in the story of Jesus. And at the heart of this doxology that he sings, we saw this invitation to imagine our spiritual lives less as a practice of mastery and more of an exercise in staying awake. Awake to the mysteries of the divine available to those who can see and hear them if we're willing. And again, as part of this, I'll make a quick plug here again for our pop-up lecture series that's happening this coming month, where we're going to present some talks on the relationship between faith and public spaces like our new library. And also, one of the things that John Van Sloten, our speaker, is going to talk a little bit about, he's going to talk about how our work, wherever we do it, wherever it happens, our work is deeply connected to spiritual practice. Anyway, with things like this in mind, I hope you took to the streets this last week, took to your office, took to the playdates, to the quiet moments of your life, watching and listening for the whispers of God's goodness. And I hope that as those moments found you, you discovered yourself ever so slightly less worried about missing God and less anxious about making things perfect and doing things right and believing everything properly. And instead, you lean further into the absolutely astounding and profoundly grounding truth that the love of God is greater far than we could ever imagine, which is why the earliest followers of Jesus called it the gospel, this good news, the best news, in fact. Now, today we're going to turn to Romans chapter 12 to finish the series. We're going to set the stage for next year, but before we go any further, join me in a moment of quiet and centering. God, you are a creator, renewer, sustaining force. And we are joined again in this space together, and we're thankful for that, for these moments that we share, and we ask again that you would take these ancient words and plant them in us. And where we are searching, we pray, would you be all that we need for places of darkness where our hope maybe has waned a little, and for places of confusion where we are unsure about how to go and where to move, and for places of weakness that we feel, maybe where we lack power or we are wrestling with illness perhaps, would you come and bring peace and light and clarity and help us? to step with you into each other's places of lack. Give us courage to serve each other well in simple ways, 
tune our ears now to your quiet voice. We ask in the name of Christ, our hope. Amen. All right. Well, to start today, I want to tell you a bit of a story. Um, In my early 20s, I had this incredible opportunity to go travel in Turkey and Greece. And there are a bunch of things about that trip that changed and shaped me. One of them being that if you ask me for a travel recommendation, I will not hesitate. Istanbul is where you should go, hands down. Despite what Kevin Borst, who is just up here leading worship, will try to tell you about Disneyland, go to Istanbul. (laughs) But anyway... One of the other things that happened for me is that I was exposed on that trip to traditions of Christian spirituality and practice that I'd never seen before, specifically Eastern Orthodoxy with its storied liturgy and history and theology. And something of that tradition that was super new and intriguing for me was iconography, which is part of the art of those churches that they've created and preserved and protected. Those paintings are often used as aids to help people pray, and they have a rich theology that I'd be happy to talk about sometime. I've got some examples here for you. The point is that on this trip, I got used to seeing the most widely produced images, things like images of Christ, images of Christ and his mother, Mary and her infant son, images of medieval saints like St. George killing the dragon there. You see these all over in churches and in shrines. They're ubiquitous in the culture. But what happens is that their common usage trips you off to the other images that you don't see as often because they're not as famous or prominent. And here's an example of one. It's generally called the embrace of the apostles. And you're going to see it pop up here. You've got Peter on the left and you've got Paul on the right. And neither of them looks particularly comfortable in this embrace and more on that in a second. But this particular image is actually rare in the tradition. It's actually quite young in comparison to many of the others that you'll run across. It's believed to have merged in the 15th century and is attributed to this guy named Nikolos Ritzos. And some feel that it was painted at a time when people were attempting to draw the Eastern and the Western churches together. And Ritzos may have been a supporter of this movement. People like Ritzos hoping to heal and restore the ways that the church had been pulled apart by differences and conflict. And here's the deal. This image captivated me way back in my university travels, in part because I was encountering forms of the tradition that I knew that were foreign to me and I was foreign to them. And I sensed that I was being welcomed, though, by the tradition. And I also, on that same trip, I was traveling with some Christians from multiple generations. Many of them were older than me. And they were from different expressions and backgrounds than I had known in my own story. And in many ways, this icon came to represent the way that the church is effectively always an embrace. It's a meeting of those with diverging opinions, bound by love discovered in Christ and then offered to each other. And it's why I think that this image is an appropriate partner for us as we go back into the text today, because as we've been discussing for the past few weeks, Paul has been talking to his Jewish family members, longing for them to hear the good news of Jesus. And as we saw last week, he starts to talk to his Gentile friends, hoping that they aren't going to use grace as a way to exclude or mistreat other people. Making this image, in some ways, a representation of what Paul wanted to see in Rome. A coming together of the strong and historical Jewish story, which is represented by Peter on the left and the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, with the new vibrant Gentile communities popping up all over the Mediterranean, including in the Roman capital, represented by Paul on the right and his travels all over the empire. 
And what's important for us to remember is that this image isn't actually a depiction of a historical event. In fact, there's some evidence that Peter and Paul didn't actually get along. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul tells a story of how he confronted Peter, basically because Peter, who had opened his arms to Gentile Christians in the past, was starting to exclude them and not eat with them when other Jews were around. And Paul thought this was an affront to the gospel, to the good news that you didn't have to be a Jew to be an insider. And so he got in Peter's face in front of a bunch of people. And we don't actually know how that conversation played out. All we know is that these two men mutually supported each other at some point in the Christian story. Meaning that as Paul wrote to gatherings like this one that we've been hearing about in Rome, Paul was articulating a new kind of community, one that was based at its core on the image of embrace, which is something that we can take with us as we get ready to leave Rome for a while. First, the fact that we shouldn't ever expect to be part of a community that doesn't confront or challenge us. That's part of the way of Jesus, how it brings hope, because it teaches us to love those who have a different view than us, to let them close enough to us to embrace. And this doesn't have to be super complicated. It's as easy as asking ourselves, does my theology and my posture in living make space for people to get close enough to me to embrace? Which is a pretty crazy litmus test when you think about it, to consider that our proximity to the way of Jesus, that humble way, is directly correlated to how wide we open our arms. And this is the kind of community that we want to be here at Commons. But the truth is that the proving ground for how it's found, it's found in the ways that you and I live beyond the moments that we share here. I think it's found when we try to understand why the people around us are so mean and angry and disappointed. When we lean closer to many of them to hear their stories. Or maybe when we actively work to see life and issues and events from other people's perspectives. By choosing to read sources or seek experts who don't confirm our biases. And I think another way that this could work itself out is when we try to work to protect our hearts by assuming the best in people instead of assuming that everybody's malicious. And that one is particularly difficult for me. And in all of these things, what we do is we offer ourselves, not in a sentimental, nauseating embrace, but in this willful attempt, awkwardly sometimes, I'm sure, to pull the world closer to us, creating a space where people don't have to be loved without being their best selves. Now, our text today, Romans 12, begins with some famous words, some often quoted phrases, and here they are. Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And don't conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good his pleasing, and his perfect will. And commentators actually unanimously point to the fact that Paul, after 11 chapters of painstaking argument, he's sort of switching his focus right here. And the therefore that I read to you right at the beginning of those two verses, it says, it says this to us. It says, hey, in light of the things that you've been talking about for four springs in a row now, Commons, hear this. 
And in effect, Paul says, if God's mercy is as good as I have claimed that it is, if the work of God in Jesus is more pervasive and transformative than all of our previous religious experiences could ever comprehend, Paul says, offer your bodies a sacrifice. And don't let the world push you into a mold. Have a keen mind. This is what God longs for. People of a new community marked by these things. Siblings and partners in a new venture. Now, it's important to understand a couple of things as we do this work. And why Paul's using the language of sacrifice here. First, we have to acknowledge how ritual practice is so important to group identity. Psychologists and anthropologists tell us, the world, tell us this the world over. How the things that we do together, repeatedly and with intention, these things shape who we are. That's why what we do and how we do it, it matters. And this applies to all kinds of things, from singing anthems before sports events, to DJs hyping the crowd before the bass drops in a club, to teachers having preschoolers sit down to receive instruction, to the ways that we come forward to receive the Eucharist from each other here at Commons. Ritual matters. And this is why we have to pay attention to Paul's language here, because rituals of sacrifice were super common in the ancient world. For the Jewish people at the time of Paul's writing, the temple in Jerusalem still stood. It still operated and it housed patterns of worship that were based on sacrifice. And there are some passages in this group of texts called the Jewish Talmud that depict priests at this time walking around or wading in blood up to their knees, describing more than a million animals being killed in one day. And while this might be, oh, it's certainly grotesque, but it might be hyperbolic, Recent archaeological studies have confirmed that the temple hosted a massive slaughtering operation and that animals were being imported to, to supply this from surrounding provinces. And the catch is this, though, that for many of the Jews that were in Rome hearing Paul's letter, many of them would never see this temple. They would never know its sacrifices. Their frame of reference for this would have been the texts of Judaism, the Levitical commands that told them when and how to offer sacrifices they couldn't offer. And what's interesting is that those Jews, along with the Gentile Christians, they would have been familiar or more familiar with the frequent local civic festivals for Roman leaders and deities in their city. And many of these rituals included animal sacrifices as well. So Paul's Roman friends would have had a picture in their minds of these kinds of ritual practices as they heard Paul speak. But then too, what would have been in their mind is how Paul has just argued that exclusive Jewish rituals are not what make you part of God's family anymore. And they had just heard Paul argue that Jesus is Lord, which was an open challenge to the Roman practice of emperor worship and the common assertion that Caesar was Lord. Which means this, that as commentator James Dunn argues, Paul was taking the boundaries off of certain group rituals and transposing them to the life of every day. Transforming them into, quote, a much more demanding work of human relationship.
take a look. Yeah, I'll just leave this headset on. We're going to take a look at this long list of suggestions that Paul makes for what this looks like. And, but first, I want us to think about what ritual is. Because last week, we talked a little bit about this shift that Paul challenges us to make. Away from thinking about our spirituality as something that we need to master, to, to being something that we need to be awake for. And I think if we take care with Paul here, there's another shift that he's getting at. See, many of us, we think of our faith and our spirituality, we, we tend to think of it as the ways and the songs that we sing and the prayers that we offer here, the practices that we repeat together. And ultimately, we think of it sometimes as doing the right things because we have come to believe the right things. And I think if we push Paul's words here a little bit and we let them push back at us, Something happens, we start to see the fact that he was telling his friends, these people who didn't have access to formal spaces and places of sacrifice, he was trying to show them the new ways that ritual was available to them in their everyday lives. And in suggesting this, Paul was exposing this unhealthy practice that has plagued many Christian traditions, where it only matters what you think and splitting all of life into this dualistic framework where beliefs and confessions are more important than bodies and actions and affections. And Paul seems to be saying, no, live your lives as ritual, your whole lives. Use your bodies to worship. And this opens up so many possibilities for us, I think. Maybe it affirms for you this kind of community that we're leaning into here at Commons, but maybe it's coming together in ways that you have never seen or heard of worship before. Practices of welcome, being warm towards each other, smiling when you come to church, making eye contact, which might be the most holy and divine thing we do when we come here together. Or what about the practices of opening your arms, even if you're not a hugger, or opening your home or your table to serve others, even if you don't like cooking or you're concerned about how clean your house is. Maybe it's just opening your schedule to new friendships. Or maybe it's been found for some of you in choosing to hear your prayers as ritual in new ways. Not just in the ones that we recite here or in what you offer in the quiet moments of your life, but in how you use or offer your body to help others or to love others, or to serve others, or to shelter others. There is a whole range of things we do that then become worship. And where the boundaries of what binds us together as a community include the ways we use and share and lend our bodies to new kinds of rituals, where the simple, everyday things we do bring renewal and reveal the good of the divine everywhere in the world. Now, Paul proceeds then for the rest of the chapter to lay out some details of what these new communities were supposed to look like. And if you're the person who's been listening through this series, listening to all of these arguments, and you've been saying, all right, Paul, I get it. Just tell me what to do. Well, you should know this about Paul, he has no trouble doing that. In fact, he seems really bossy at times, but that's a sermon for another day. The point is that Paul starts drawing this picture of a community that's built on the idea 
of expansive grace and kindness. The idea that if God is real and at all good, then there is space for everyone in the places that we claim are divine. And he speaks candidly, saying in such a community this, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. And in this phrase, James Dunn contends that Paul is defining Christian character as the refusal to impose the standard of one's own relationship with God on anybody else. In other words, to live a life of faith means to come alive with curiosity, finding out how God is faithful in your life, and then looking for the ways that God is real in other people around you. Which is why then Paul leans into how communities like this flourish when we are all allowed to belong, bringing our distinct experiences to share with each other. And Paul says it this way, as he does in other places in his writing in the, in the New Testament. In, in Christ, he says, we, though many, we form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. And we all have different gifts according to the grace that was given to each of us. Which is a really beautiful way to think about community. Then Paul launches into something called perinesis, which is found throughout the Greek and Jewish sources that we have. It's a style of writing where an author strings together admonitions or commands of a general ethical content. Often ancient authors just pull these thoughts together from eclectic sources and in seemingly random order. They don't even really sometimes seem to be developing a clear theme. And this is what Paul does. He's drawing on Hebrew thought, and he's drawing on the teaching of Jesus at times. He's pulling in some Stoic philosophy, and then he does this as he says things like this. He says, hate what is evil, cling to the good. Be devoted to each other. Don't lack zeal. Be joyful. Share with those in need. Practice hospitality. Bless anybody who's persecuting you. Mourn with anybody who's mourning. Don't be proud. Hang out with people of a lower position. And don't be conceited. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And listen, there's so much good stuff there in those commands, and there's no end to the ways that you and I could choose to let Paul shape our living with these things. But we would be wrong to think that we are supposed to do it all. To think that Paul's making a firm checklist for us that we need to go into life with. And I'll tell you why I think this. Because as I thought about how Paul was wrapping up this letter, leaning into the final chapters, how next year we're going to come back and finish our journey with him, and how some of us might still be struggling about how to take the great wonder of God's mercy and translate it into our experience, I started to realize that perinesis is all, all around us. And that we all construct our lives around wisdom and insight and beauty in ways that help us create the kind of new community that Paul imagined for his friends. I mean, think about our benediction here at Commons. How each week we invite each other to love God, to love people, and tell the story. That's kind of quippy. Kind of sounds a little bit like Paul in this passage, right? But what's interesting is that, that those phrases are meant to shape the way that you and I live in the world. It's not just a turn of phrase. And then I started thinking about the perinesis that are all around my life, the things that have shaped me, the little quotes and sayings that I've run across, 
the images and art that have crashed into me, that I've held and collected to form the corpus of my own faith, evolving and changing as it is. Like Henry Skugel's challenge that came to me in the 17th, well, not in the 17th century, from the 17th century. This is what Skugel says. He says, away then with all perplexing fears and desponding thoughts to undertake vigorously and rely confidently on divine assistance is more than half the conquest. And I can still remember where I was sitting when I read that. It was like fire for me. Or then there's this section of Mary Oliver's poem sometimes where she writes, instructions for living a life. Pay attention. Be astonished. Tell about it. Or Rainer Rilke, who still provokes me when I remember his words, perhaps everything terrible in the world is in its deepest being something helpless that wants help from us. Or then there's Annie McKee's performance of this song he wrote, Never Grow Old, that left me a mess at my desk and more committed to living a full life. And then there's the film About Time that I know that some of you are going to feel less of me for mentioning but I'm encouraging everybody, make sure you watch this film. Or Teresa of Avila, who reminds me some days that we can only learn to know ourselves and do what we can. And then she just drops the mic. Or Christopher Hitchens, who in his last days before succumbing to cancer, he spoke these simple instructions to a young fan. Excuse me. And from all of his candid wit and his incisive vocabulary, he whispered to this young woman, remember the love bit. And all of these instructions come back to me again and again, even sometimes in the image of an awkward embrace like the one I showed you at the beginning. And I wish I could take you how each of them tells me how to live in the world. The ways that these things have altered my decisions, the ways that along with many others, they've expanded the ways that I think about my faith and how I live with a profound awareness that Jesus is far grander and more beautiful than I thought and how much more grounded and demanding his way is at times. But that's probably not what you need today. Instead, Maybe you can sense an invitation to read and live with Paul's practical instructions in new ways. Maybe sharing with those in need, like he says, being hospitable, connecting with those in precarious social positions. But then maybe more than this, I, want, I wonder if you could start to record or pay attention to the perinesis that you have picked up along the way. And if you can start to think of the ideas and the beauty and the tenacity that you need for faith and start to realize that those things are all around you. And this practice, what it does is it, it starts to help us see Paul as an ally. How we don't have to do everything he says or even remember it all. No, but we take what sticks from Paul and especially where Paul encourages us toward kindness and generosity, we should not be afraid to bring Paul along with us in our living, joining his words along with other scriptures that we remember, or poems that we find, or tiny desk concerts we watch, or wisdom that comes to us in a friend over hot chocolate, building a faith 
that's alive and changing. So, as you set out from Rome today, may you go remembering as you have heard Paul say and repeat each year that we've come back to him, you hear him say that God is endlessly faithful. Will you remember that? May you find courage then to live with open arms to those who are different than you and discover imagination to build new rituals with your everyday life. And may you find divine wisdom and light out there in all God's world, learning that faith is something that should not and could not ever be prescribed, but only discovered in the wonder of your own story. Let's pray together. Gracious God, present to us now in these moments, in ancient words and the ways where those words press up against the wisdom that come to us in so many voices. We ask in these moments and in the days that we go to live into, would you give us courage to bring the world close? Give us courage to struggle through the awkwardness of the ways in which the world is sometimes difficult to deal with and give us vision for what it means to love as you do. Help us to see our life as a door that opens into new rituals too, new practices that build new faith and new awareness of your goodness. We ask that you would help us as we pay attention to the wisdom that we carry and all the instructions that we pick up the things that are pressing up against us even in these moments now. And we ask, would you teach us to trust that you are guiding us in so many ways. You guide us in Paul's encouragements. You guide us in the poetry, the music, the beauty of this world. Would you give us courage to trust that you are as faithful and as merciful and as generous as Paul thought and experienced you to be. We ask now in the name of Christ, our hope. Amen.